This is Wade's World, where we talk to the most interesting people in the world on KABF 88.3, the voice of the people. You want to see how the other half lives? Well, see how we get around. Why don't you come visit me on the east side of town? This is Wade Rathke, and you're listening to Wade's World, a Voice of the People program. Welcome to the east side of town so that we can talk about how the other half lives and what life is like here living in Wade's World. Whether that's the east side of Little Rock, Greenville, or New Orleans, or on Acorn Radio in Nairobi, Bengaluru, Bristol, or Bombay, points east and west, where we are either rebroadcast or live-streamed at kabf.org, wamf.org, or acornradio.org. A podcast will be available this show on those websites and at www.chieforganizer.org. You know the story on Wade's World. We talk to the most interesting people in the world. And today we're talking to Professor Nicholas Zaller, a professor of public health at the University of Arkansas Medical Scientist Operation here in Little Rock, Arkansas. Welcome to Wade's World, Nick. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Well, it's, you know, we couldn't have a better time. We probably should have had you on every other day for the last six months, but... Public health, we read about it all the time. I had a couple of interns this summer, and they all of a sudden decided they would major in public health. I mean, it's uh, public health in a pandemic. This is what y'all trained for for years, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's on the one hand, it's it's great to be in public health because, as you as you mentioned, this is what we trained for. Uh, I must say that it's been concerning the sort of some of the backlash around public health and 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 the guidance that public health folks have been providing for, for people. And really the intention is keeping everyone safe, really, and getting through this pandemic. And so um, there's been a lot of uh, tension between uh, public health and general population in terms of you know, how to best get through this. And so um, that's been unfortunate. But for the most part, um, you know, as you said, this, this is what we train for. I mean, Dr. Fossey has become a household word almost, but almost needs police protection from what we read. Yeah, as he has uh, talked about, it's, it's extremely bizarre that an infectious disease expert would need uh, a police escort and would have death threats. And so that kind of lets you know the state of our nation um, and the divisions that we have and, you know, the really mistrust, distrust, uh, of science, and, and I think that's particularly concerning, and it's hard to have consistent messaging from the public health community when we have lots of folks who are constantly undermining that messaging um, or questioning it and, uh, and thinking that um, as scientists, as public health experts, we have sort of these ulterior motives um, really, our ulterior motive is to keep people alive. <laughs> exactly. That's my ulterior motive is keeping people safe, healthy, keeping them alive. That, that's my ulterior motive. Well, once again, we're on the other side of the coin where we actually support public health. And, uh, you know, we're actually OK with the science. So it's good that you're with us. Uh, Nick, one of the things that uh, had me reaching out for you is uh, I know you uh, issued a call to the governor in Arkansas because of your expertise in not only public health, but how it intersects with HIV, the prison population, drug use. Um, 
calling for a more pronounced and aggressive effort at releasing prisoners who were eligible. Uh, at the point that I read this, it was more than a thousand people, and you were saying, hey, you know, it's about 25%, can we get the job done? Where are we on that? Well, I, I will say that we're not as far along the road as we could be, and I think, you know, I want to sort of take a step back and just kind of frame it a little bit in that, you know, prisons and jail facilities, any congregate living facility, we've seen this in nursing homes and other places. College campuses. College yeah, campuses, schools. dormitories, schools. Uh, these are places that are optimal for uh, coronavirus spread. And so anytime you have close person-to-person -person contact over prolonged periods, we know there are going to be spikes in cases and outbreaks. And, and of course, we've seen this throughout prison facilities in Arkansas. So really, um, the national consensus among public health experts is we understand that it's not feasible or realistic for a lot of correctional settings to use a lot of the measures that we can, like social distancing, for example. Yeah. Uh, and isolating folks can be extremely harmful. We already know the harmful psychological impact of segregating populations, segregating individuals, solitary confinement. So we certainly do not want to advocate that, well, somebody's uh, positive for coronavirus, well, just isolate them, put them in solitary. Um, and not to suggest that's what I mean, the mental health effects alone have been documented now widely. Right. So um, the main thing that we've really uh, centered on is how can we safely decarcerate? Uh, and, and really what that means is we're not talking about taking the most serious violent folks and you know, letting them out. There's a lot of misperception, a lot of misinformation, but there are a significant number of individuals who are incarcerated in jails and prisons who are convicted of nonviolent offenses or um, who are a victim of circumstance. So we know that we have tremendous uh, racial disparities. Uh, we know we have a lot of folks who are incarcerated sheer, just simply because they have significant mental illness or they have a substance use disorder. They have a medical condition. And so we have chosen to incarcerate rather than to provide treatment as a society and this is the end result where we have these correctional facilities that are teeming with individuals. We're warehousing them. And of course, it's, it's analogous to a tinderbox. We see the, the fires in the West. Uh, well, correctional facilities are, are similar with respect to coronaviruses out, coronavirus outbreaks. So uh, it's not surprising this has happened. Um, the, the, real, the safest way is to, to, to protect the health of everyone, including the prison uh, staff and jail staff. So it, it's important to realize that nationally, you know, while there's over well over 100,000 cases of coronavirus in prisons, uh, there's over 25,000 cases among correctional staff. And of course, correctional staff, guards, correctional officers, medical personnel, they're coming in and out of these facilities on a daily basis. So they're potentially transmitting to the community and or introducing coronavirus into the facility. Uh, from the community. I think um, one of the things you cited in earlier was that Lincoln County and some of the areas where we have prisons were among the top hot spots at that time in the whole country, not only in Arkansas, but uh, nationally or within the top 10. 
You know, it's one thing to talk about the football team and whether or not it uh, should be in the top 10, but I don't think that's one of the places we're hoping to score well. No, uh, certainly not. And, you know, the, the argument has been, and, and I will say that we have done more aggressive testing in our correctional facilities than a lot of other states. And as a result, uh, that has contributed to a high case rate um, in Arkansas. That being said, people uh, need to keep the context in mind that Arkansas incarcerates about uh, you know, 900 people per 100,000, and we have a higher incarceration rate in this state than most Western European nations. So I think it's very important that we keep in mind that we are well within the top 10 and have been historically in that range for, for a number of years in terms of our rates of incarceration. So this is not just a simply uh, a coronavirus situation, we have uh, a state of incarceration that really ranks among the top in the nation. We also, in talking about the prison population, we have a number, I would believe, of people with some age on them who've been doing long haul stints in <clears throat> prison and would be among what we all understand to be the most susceptible to a death sentence from, if they catch COVID-19. Um, were they part of what was considered in the uh, uh, the release program, or? Well, you know, you're right in that there's a couple of things at, at play. We know that um, all of the evidence that we have is unequivocal that once folks reach a certain age, their risk of committing a new offense, particularly a violent crime, goes to close to zero, especially for folks over 60. But we live in a culture of punishment, and, and that punishment is indefinite punishment. You know, we do not, as a society, want to release people. If they've been convicted of a violent crime when they were 18, 19, and now they're 60, we have to ask ourselves, when is enough enough? Are we at the point where we're okay with continuing to incarcerate people, and, and by the way, at significant taxpayer costs, and, and healthcare is constitutionally mandated for prison population, so we have to provide adequate healthcare. Uh, it's a significant uh, burden to the system in terms of medical expense to continue to incarcerate folks uh, well into their 60s. Um, and there is a process of accelerated aging in the correctional setting. So we have a number of folks who are 55 and older, 60 and older, with chronic medical conditions, and the question becomes, could they be uh, better off in the community? Most likely the answer is yes, provided they have supports necessary. Again, we wanna safely release folks, sure. not release them to a more dangerous environment. But I think the cornerstone of this discussion really comes down to, as a society, how do we view punishment? And when do we think enough is enough in terms of punishment? If, you know, if we say, you have a 50-year sentence, you're going to serve every day of that 50-year sentence. And again, this is no, um, this is trying to understand the perspective of all parties here, not to discount um, victims of violent crimes and horrific sure. offenses, but it's never as simple as it seems. Well, that could be a watchword for the times we're living in. We're talking to uh, Professor Nicholas Zaller of the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences uh, Complex, and he's a public health professor. 
This uh, whole problem of um, a death sentence for prisoners, but you've looked at other issues that have to do with our prisons, and not only here in Arkansas, but around the country and elsewhere, but this is also a situation where uh, HIV, drug-related problems, uh, we're not really on top of criminal justice in terms of how we deal with a number of issues, are we? No, and I think that you know you you highlighted just now um, multiple issues um, that are disproportionately impacting correctional populations. So if you look at infectious diseases more generally, uh, HIV, hepatitis C, um, you know, in other countries, tuberculosis is a is a real problem. But in the United States, our our biggest driver for mass incarceration has been um, addiction, really, yeah. and, and mental illness. So we have taken some steps in the state uh, here in Arkansas with um, the opening of multiple uh, crisis stabilization units, and the intent of those is to uh, divert folks away from county jail uh, for stabilization of their mental health symptoms and trying to reconnect them or connect them to community mental health support instead of incarcerating them in the county jail because as most of our, our all pretty much, I would guess all of our county sheriffs will attest that they see far too much mental illness among folks that, that come to them. And you know, unlike a lot of places, they, they can't turn people away. You know, they have to take everybody that comes to them. And so you know, that is a significant issue. Jails and prisons are not equipped to deal with severe mental illness. Uh, it's a danger to both individuals, to other uh, correctional populations, and to staff to have somebody who is unstable. And the other thing is we have historically criminalized addiction. So we continue uh, to talk about uh, recovery and talk about supporting recovery and talk about supporting treatment um, rather than incarceration. And yet if you look at our rates of incarceration over the past decade or so, uh, our actions do not really reflect the words that we, that we say. And I, and I think that we have had some additional movement as a society uh, within the context of the opioid epidemic which honestly is still going on. It, it right. has not disappeared. It's, it's taken second chair, but it's still in the orchestra for no, for no good reason. Right. So I, I think that that has allowed some folks to view addiction a little bit differently because the face of who becomes addicted is a little bit different. We understand that there is susceptibility across population and demographics, and so that has made addiction, there, there's more of a, if you will, a humane face Whereas the stereotypes and the judgment that we've that we've often sort of heaped upon people with addiction, that is still very very much there, but it's lessened slightly. And so I think that's that's a that's a, an essential thing. We need to further move in that direction, where we understand uh, addiction as a, a real medical condition. And frankly, if we're not going to invest in community treatment options especially substance use treatment, then what do we expect is gonna happen? We're gonna to continue to see uh, rates of incarceration the way we see. We're gonna to continue to see folks not getting better because we're not investing in the infrastructure. So we have a choice here. We have a choice. Are we going to continue to incarcerate people or are we gonna improve people's lives by investing in community treatment options and and in Arkansas we really need to do a much better job particularly on the 
substance use treatment side, but also on the mental health side. We need to expand capacity greatly, especially in rural communities, in rural areas where there are not enough treatment providers uh, available. That's a real problem. And so if folks have to drive hours, it's not going to happen. No, it's certainly not. Uh, I first came to Arkansas and lived here for seven and a half years, uh, 50 years ago, in 1970. And it seems like one of the things that's been a through line in my experience in Arkansas has been the problem with our prisons. I mean, we were a huge scandal at that point uh, when I was coming in. The new prison commissioner, Robert Sarver, came in and supposedly cleaned it up. There was um, an article, a long, long article in The New Yorker a couple of months ago about essentially how bad things were still in the prisons. And I know the governor here and everybody else was up in arms. Oh, my God, they misinterpreted it. We still, we're not trying to run it at a profit anymore. We're not trying to say, but we don't take seriously this uh, prison situation in Arkansas. It continues to be a political, social, and community issue. Um, and I know you've been here in the state for 10 or 15 years now, or I'm not even sure how long you've been here, actually. Uh, well, about seven. I'm, I'm originally, well, seven. From, originally from Oklahoma, but been here around close, almost seven. Okay, well, that's the same time I've lived here, roughly. Uh, now I'm in and out for the last six, seven years. but. Um, why, why are we still so unable to put our arms around this? It just seems like it's, uh, it's caught in a box with a lock that seems so obvious to pick, but that politically they're just not willing to finally say, okay, we've got to fix this. And I, hey, I live in Louisiana now. You're from Oklahoma. None of us can throw rocks at a glass house. Uh, but uh, here in the South, we're, in the West, we're not doing a very good job. Well, you know, I, I think it's fundamentally um, a really uh, a conversation that we have to um, really reckon with as a society. And, and I you know, mentioned a little bit in terms of uh, how we view punishment. Sure. But I, I use the analogy, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, the person, they get what they deserve or, you know, you, you do the crime. Do the time. Do time, sure. I know the you know, law. All, all of those, are, you know, law and order, and but but, do we when we peel back the layers of the onion, and a lot of folks who are incarcerated, we see abuse and trauma from an extremely early age. I will tell you, I've looked at some of the folks on death row and some of the people uh, who have life sentences, and if everybody understood that what happened to some of these folks when they were children and how that influenced their lives. Uh, and, and again, you know, is that excuse behavior? Absolutely not. You know, nobody is saying, and nobody that advocates for criminal justice reform says, well, we should you know, applaud or release, you know, murderers and rapists and all these you know, violent folks, you know, and, and just not give them any punishment whatsoever. But you know, there's also this idea of restorative justice where we involve the victims, we involve the families. I mean, how often do we see where a family says, I don't want the death penalty for the person that killed my loved one, but I have no recourse because the state is insisting for it. So we don't always listen to the victims. All, a lot of times people say, well, I'm going to advocate for the victims because no one else will. But do we really stop and ask what folks really want and what kind of system of punishment do we want? And so you know, these are difficult questions, but in the law and order, 
you know, to me, it's, it's kind of a very simplistic and, and almost ridiculous argument because, again, if we're really talking about fixing the problem, why do we allow conditions where children are abused and tortured? Why do we allow a system in Arkansas where so many children go hungry? So many children are in poverty. So many children uh, are not properly cared for by their parents. And why don't we provide enough support for the parents? Why do we have, you know, we, we, you know, we talk about a low unemployment rate, but we have a lot of people that are working two, three jobs and cannot earn enough money because they don't get paid a livable wage. So in this state, we have some of the richest corporations in the world, and we're in one of the poorest states in the United States. How can we reconcile that? So if we're not, you know, people say, well, you know, if you work hard enough, then you'll get, you know, what you need. And that's just simply not the case. You know, it's not the case that, you know, this idea that you work hard and you get what you need to survive. There are too many people that don't have that. And, and how does this tie in the criminal justice system? Well, very easily. So, you know, people get wrapped up in this system um, of crime for a number of reasons. But unless we're willing to really think hard about dealing with the structural fundamental issues of society, and it starts with children, and everybody sort of can get around this idea that, yes, let's help kids, let's protect kids, but we're not doing it. <laughs> we're, you know, we have some of the highest adverse childhood experience scores in the nation. We have a huge number of kids in this state that have multiple adverse childhood experiences, and we have mountains of evidence to suggest that that influences the rest of their life. I saw a statistic the other day, uh, Nick, about women in prison, 35 years. In the last 35 years, the incarceration rate has gone up 750%, and the vast majority have some history of abuse that they, you know, once they interview the people in the prison community, almost all of them have some story of abuse that goes back to their childhood. I mean, we're, we've, we're talking to, uh, Professor Nicholas Zaller, who's a professor of public health at the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences Operation. But, uh, you know, who knows what we thought we were going to talk about, but we're deep into the presence. And, you know, in Nick's last comments, we're, we're ready to list everything we need to do here in Arkansas and a number of the states where this broadcast is heard. What else can we do to more effectively deal with this particular pandemic situation. I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of wheel this 18-wheeler out of the prisons and some of the horrors that we're talking about to talk about, well, what do we do to finally deal with this? Because it looks like it's going to go on for a while. It is. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to go on for a while, uh, even with a vaccine. You know, we're all sort of hoping uh, that we get a good vaccine and we've got some promising candidates. Um, the thing that I always like to tell people is, you can't warp speed or no warp speed. There are certain things you can't rush. So clinical trials involve enrolling people, giving them the vaccine, seeing how they respond if they're exposed. And those are things you just can't accelerate beyond a certain I have to stop you, Nick, because uh, the president said these are great companies that are developing these vaccines. Why would the FDA get in their way? They know what they're doing. I mean, he said this yesterday. <laughs> I mean, it was just... You think you've gotten to the end of the comments you're going to read, but these are great companies. They know what they're doing. They know how to develop drugs. The FDA. Where, well, how, how, how do we? 
How do we beat that snake I, with a stick? Yeah, I don't I don't want to weigh too much in that. I mean, they're Yeah, they're, no, they're, I get you. Countless, I just couldn't resist. Well, countless examples of companies falsifying or withholding data. Absolutely. Uh, actually, and people have died because of it. So, Absolutely. So that, we can talk about said, formaldehyde. We can talk about, you know, one situation after another. But I, I think, you know, the, the key thing here is, again, you know, in some respects, you know, we're... We didn't take certain protective measures early on, and and that that we time paid the price. Is, and that period is over. So we are now. We can't sort of you know. I hindsight is twenty twenty, and we can yeah. always say, well, we should have, should have, should have. Well, at this point, there's no. Uh, let's move on from that. Right now, uh, the things that we need to continue to do. Uh, obviously, wearing masks is of crucial importance, and, and this has been um, a little bit strange to me how this has been such a cultural touch point because me wearing a mask is protecting you. So I want to protect those around me. Uh, I want to protect my community. I want to protect my family. So wearing a mask is an act of love and caring. It's not sort of about this personal liberty and freedom. It's really about we are all in this together and to me it's a quintessential american thing you know how you know masking up has become this uh commentary on what it means to be american i would hope that what it means to be american is we're all in this together and we all care about each other and as a result i'm going to wear a mask to protect you to protect everyone so we can get through this thing and so you know that hand washing sanitation the, the social distance i know you know, social distancing, we're human, you know, we're social animals. I know that it's so difficult to maintain, you know, these really difficult social distancing, you know, guidelines, and I know that it's, it's taken a tremendous toll. Um, but, you know, if we talk about a nation of sacrifices, look what we've done in the past for prolonged periods of national sacrifice. Where we've come together and said, you know what, this is what it takes to get through this. But for some reason, we're not really drawing upon that rich American tradition of let's you know really be all in this together, and I think part which of it which means is, this will go on longer. Which I means mean, it's everybody go wants it to end. Let's be honest. You and I would be ready for it to end yesterday. I mean, nobody's going to out argue us for putting an end to this. But part of what <laughs> bothers me is even if we say it's going to be somewhere, maybe throughout 2021 or deep into 20, for every time we can't come. In, get it together in the way yeah. that you're talking about we're in we're in 2022 again we're i mean yeah who knows when it ends if we can't sort of finally deal with this yeah i think that it, it, you know getting into this idea that you know we've got to really be consistent we've got to you know really do what we can now otherwise you're right it, it's going to drag on for a while and and you know there's a lot of evidence now that you know that the coronavirus is not going to go away um, anytime soon, and it, it may it may be with us indefinitely, even when we have a vaccine that will have you know vaccination campaigns, it, and and we're not clear about a lot of things, you know, in terms of how long immunity lasts, and you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, just because it's it's such a new virus, we haven't we don't have enough data, we don't have enough good research, so we have a lot of unanswered questions that we're working as hard as we can to answer, but the practical simple things that we can do as a society you know masks social distance good hand washing hygiene 
these are basic fundamental things that are not rocket science. You know, these are things that really with all of our sophisticated technology and warp speed with vaccine production and all this stuff, the most basic simple things that we refuse to do for so long, like wearing a face covering, could have and can continue to knock this virus down to more manageable levels so that we can reopen more, so that we can you know, have kids go back to school. So just basically saying we're gonna do this no matter what, without taking the precautions, well, what do we expect we're gonna see? Well, we see outbreaks, we see cases uh, in, sure. in places like schools and, and, and businesses. It's worrisome that some of the polling uh, of fairly large samples of the public indicate they're not too excited about taking the vaccine. I mean, part of this public messaging from the top down and all around is also sort of putting a cloud around even a perfect a perfect vaccine could be developed over the next six months or year or whatever. Yeah. And then we still have to, as you just said, have to do a vaccination campaign to actually get people to take it. Wow. Yeah. Well, and I think the public health messaging, that's, that's, you know, again, a part of the concern is that, you know, we need to have our public health folks be trusted sources of information. And that's been the most unfortunate thing about this whole process is that public health folks have been maligned and, uh, you know, have been criticized heavily. Uh, and, and, and to be sure, you know, one thing to clear up is the state of science has shifted. People go back and say, well, you know, at the beginning, public health folks said, don't wear masks or masks aren't needed, and then they shifted. Well, this is a brand new virus. We're understanding things that uh, at a rapid pace and in the public health community, we're perfectly okay with pivoting and saying, yeah, we, you know, we were- Let's change on, course. Based on the available evidence a month ago, we recommended A. Based on the available evidence today, we recommend B. That's how science works. I got to tell you the story. The time's getting short, but I was bargaining a union contract with a, you know, management lawyer. She was out of Columbus, big firm. And we said we wanted to amend the contract. It was for community home people who take care of the differently abled uh, in independent living settings. And there have been COVID cases, positive. They, we'd had to provide the, the PPE. And uh, I said, we want to put in there that the, the company has to follow CDC guidelines in terms of safety for employers. And her response was, you know, in X number of months, the CDC changed its position 20 odd times. And I said, well, I don't know what the number is, but isn't that a sign of change? I mean, is that necessarily bad? Well, we're still caught in that argument. Well, and I think the key thing here is, is any, you know, regardless of the extent that it's been occurring, but even the suggestion of political interference in the CDC is extremely concerning because Absolutely. it's the one entity that's supposed to be free of politics where we know that the science coming out and the recommendations coming out of the CDC is not being influenced it's based on data nick we gotta tell people how they can get a hold of you if they have other questions or want to continue this dialogue either about prisons or public health or any of the things y'all are doing over there at uh, uams yeah so the probably the uh, best easiest way to get in touch with me is just send me an email my email address is n as in nick d as in daniel zoller z as in zebra a l l e r at uams.edu. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we probably could have talked for a couple of hours once we got into mass reform in Arkansas and the world. This has been Wage World for another week, the world where the other half lives, where we talk about things you've never heard. And as Lucinda Williams sang, 
things you've never seen and will never forget. Wage World is underwritten by the Darrow Foundation, a progressive force enabling change. Based in Little Rock, Arkansas, and as the song goes, we say it loud, we say it on the air, we say it on the radio. Until next week, when we have another guest, this is Wade Rathke from Wage World. Thank you.